You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading comes from 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15, which you can find on page 968 of your Pew Bible. And as we love to say every week, if you do not have a Bible of your own at home, please take one with you after the service. We would love to make a gift of that. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading today is found in your pew Bibles on page 811. It is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, and then verse 19 to 24. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and dust and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal." 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the gospel of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Good to see you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. Very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we are about halfway through the season of Lent. And I know the season of Lent is just so misunderstood. So contrary to popular belief, Lent is not the season of gloominess or joylessness, but rather a time where the church around the world and throughout history goes on a pilgrimage, so to speak, a journey with Jesus through the wilderness that terminates in the cross and then detonates in, res- in resurrection at the very end. And even though Christians are people who believe that we live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, we do, we believe that. However, we also believe that it's a formative practice for all Christians to retrace the steps, to travel down into the valley first, before ascending up to the mountaintop. And so Christians are people who, according to the logic of the gospel, believe that first you have to descend before you rise. You can't have the empty tomb without the cross. You can't have the promised land without the wilderness. You can't have Easter without Lent. Now, to help us embrace this and to kind of lean into this dynamic during this season, we are pursuing a sermon series that we're calling Virtue, Practicing Redemptive Habits. And the core human question that we're asking that's motivating this whole series is simply, how do we change? How do human beings change? There are some of you who might be young enough uh, and and new enough in, in adult life to think, oh, I know how to change. You just sort of like think different thoughts and then you make different choices and off you go and you're a different person. Then there are those of you who are older. Maybe you've got some gray hair. And as you hear me explain that, you think, oh no, that's not how it works. I tried that. It didn't work. I've tried that for years. I'm still the same person. So many of us have the experience of knowing people, you know, year over year over year. And we sort of realize that most people don't change. They just become more themselves over time. And as we joked a few weeks ago, more themselves with less inhibitions as they get older, right? Which makes most of us just get weirder and weirder and weirder as the years go on, right? I'm well on my way. Now, how do we change? How do human beings change? There's a hypothesis that we're exploring. And the hypothesis is that we are not primarily changed through our intellect, but through our embodied practices. Here's an example. Reading a book about exercise and believing in your mind in the health benefits of exercise will not do a single thing to lower your cholesterol or tone your deltoids, but if you strap on a bathing suit and go swim some laps, it will, right? The embodied practice will change you, the belief and the knowledge will not. In the same way, reading a book about God, the Bible, and believing in the spiritual benefits of Christianity will not do a thing to make you a more virtuous human being. It will not change you, 
but practicing your faith with your body will. That's the hypothesis we're exploring here. And so in this series, we're exploring six core practices that cultivate virtue. Six core, they're not the only six, but they're six places to get started. On Ash Wednesday, practice number one, the practice of remembering your death, just kind of frames out the whole thing. Remember that you are a mortal creature and that one day you are going to die and let that backfill the way you think about all of your life and your habits and your practices and the way that you order your time. Practice number two, the practice of silence and solitude, being able to be still and quiet, both in your outer body and also in your inner person. This is the foundation for even being able to have a relationship with God, the practice of silence and solitude. Practice number three, last week, the practice of fasting. We talked about how there are some things you can only learn through fasting. Reading a book about fasting, listening to a sermon about fasting is very different from the actual experience of missing a meal right? Some things you can only learn through practice. Today is the practice of giving. Next week, the practice of submission. And then we'll end with the practice of prayer. Now, today we're talking about the practice of giving. And before we, we kind of dive in, it's just good to recognize the emotion in the room right now. A sermon about giving, about financial generosity, kind of creates a lot of anxiety, right? Those of you who have been a part of Redeemer for a while, it's not the first one you've heard, so maybe you're feeling fine. Those of you who are relatively new, maybe you're not quite sure how this is going to go, feels a little kind of stressful. And those of you who are visiting for the very first time, you're like, I picked the wrong Sunday to visit. <laughs> Come back next week. Actually, next week is submission, so it's just, it's just not going to get any better. Um, <clears throat> but hey, let's, let's together agree that, that the Bible talks an awful lot about money and Jesus himself talked an awful lot about money. And, and money has this strange and interesting tangled up hold over our hearts sometimes. And some of us maybe are just a little bit more captive to our finances than maybe we would like to be. And so I think there's something good here for us, no matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor or in debt, whether you've been at Redeemer for years or whether this is your very first Sunday, there's something for us here. Let's say a prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A tale of two gardens. Garden number one is the garden in my backyard. I stand there every morning when I take our puppy out to use the bathroom in the morning, right around 6 a.m. And I think to myself during the summer months, I wish I had planted something here <laughs> because the garden's usually tangled and overgrown with weeds. And I'll think there should be, I, right? Especially in August. By the time we get to August, I think there should be blackberries and tomatoes and carrots and arugula and all kinds of good stuff here. But the problem is I didn't plant anything in March or April, right? I'm way better at reaping than I am at sowing. I like harvesting, planting, not so much. Garden number two. Two houses down from mine is a lovely family uh, with which we are close friends. And when they bought the house, they inherited in their backyard blueberry bushes that were planted 20 years ago and are now eight to nine feet tall. And there's like 10 of them. And the harvest of blueberries that the whole neighborhood gets every, sun, every summer, I don't know what the, the tonnage is, but it's out of control. 
And my kids know that in July and August, they are welcome to run two two doors down and to gather as many blueberries as they want. And there's blueberry pancakes and blueberry muffins and just like every conceivable kind of food you can make with blueberry, we give it a shot. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But there's an abundance of harvest. Why? Because 20 years ago, somebody did some planting, right? A tale of two gardens. Now the story of the Bible begins with with a garden. Some of you might know that. In the story of the Bible, God is introduced to us as the original gardener. And humans are introduced as sub-gardeners, you might say. And all of creation is given as a gift. And humans are meant to reflect the image of this self-giving, gardening God. Humans are to give animals their names, give fruitfulness to the garden, give culture and development to the world. Give, give, give is the invitation and command to humans. Why? Because they are made to reflect the giving God. But through what we call the fall into sin, the story goes sideways. Humans, instead of giving, take. They reach out their hands and they take that which was not given. Taking what God sowed as a means of independence from God, taking from God, which then leads to taking from each other, which then leads to taking from the world. And before you know it, as human society develops, it's mostly a society and culture of taking, not a society and culture of giving. And we experience that today. And yet Jesus enters the scene as the embodiment of the self-giving God. Jesus as the truest and most perfect gift who lives a life of giving, gives up his own life. And then as Jesus gathers the church, the church is to be the people who give, who live in a taking world and yet are the givers. And all of this points forward to a new creation hope at the very end of the biblical story where the whole world is renewed once more to be a place of giving, giving and receiving from God, giving and receiving to each other. No taking in the new heavens and the new earth. Now that's the biblical story and into it we have our text this morning, both in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 6. And it's just really important for all of us to know that this, these words that were read this morning about giving and about money and about what we do with it, they are set in the midst of this larger biblical narrative of the self-giving God, a people who have fallen into sin through taking a God who comes to us in Jesus to give of himself and a future of giving and receiving to which we hope. Now, the immediate context of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is, this is kind of funny, a little capital campaign. The Apostle Paul has written a letter to this little church plant in the bustling city of Corinth. And amongst many other things that he wants to communicate to them, he communicates a need all the way back in the city of Jerusalem, 817 miles away by boat, 1,827 miles away by foot. These are people the Corinthian Christians have never met. They will likely never meet them. They will never know what goes on in that church over in Jerusalem, but they know there's a need and they're being asked to give. Now, as we think about what might be here for us, we're gonna think about what happens when we do some giving of our own, when we, using the metaphor of, of the text, sow seed, meaning give our money out into the world. And we're going to talk about the two different kinds of seed that is planted when we give away our money. And it's very simple, two very simple categories. One, there's the outer seed that is planted, sowing out into the world a harvest of fruitfulness in the lives of other people. 
But then there's a second form of seed that is sown, sowing into your own heart, a harvest of virtue, how you change on the inside, how that outer bodily practice of giving actually changes you on the inside as you practice it. Let's talk about it. The text begins, and I love when Paul is clear, and this is one place where he is oh so clear. He writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's a principle here that is not a Christian principle. It's just a human universal principle. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly, you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Plant a small garden, get a few vegetables, plant a large farm, get a lot of stuff, right? Simple logic. One seed, one wheat seed, will grow up into one wheat stalk that will produce on average about 50 new kernels of wheat. So there's exponential growth here, but you're gonna have to plant a big field if you're gonna get enough wheat to grind flour and to bake bread. One will not be enough. In the next sentence, Paul goes on to write about the emotional dynamic. And again, there's a principle here. Each one must decide as they have, each one must give as they have decided in their own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And again, the word God shows up in this sentence, but the logic and the principle here is again not, not Christian per se. It's just human, it's reality. It's better to give cheerfully and willingly than it is to be coerced or manipulated. We can agree with that, right? Better to give away willingly than to be forced into doing so. Now, the combined meaning of these two principles is that we are to sow bountifully with a cheerful heart. We're to give away our money freely and to do so with a pretty good attitude. Now, there's more here, and the logic of the thought keeps going when Paul writes, and God is able to make I'm going to call out a few phrases here. God is able to make all grace abound in you. So having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Okay, so Paul has some pretty deep Hebrew roots. The Hebrew way for putting things in all bold or cap is just like repeat them over and over again. And so here's a very repetitive sentence that is meant to highlight an idea for us. The purpose of God's provision to you is so that you have the resources to do his work. The purpose of God's provision is so that you have the resources to do his work. Not a complicated idea. It's a very simple idea. You've been given what you have so that you have the resources to do God's work. If I can direct your attention to the art on the cover of the liturgy, if you can take a look at that painting with me. This is a painting called The Sower, it's by Eva Koliva Timothy. Take a look at it. What is this woman doing? She reaches down into the cloth that is tied around her waist. She gathers up a handful of seeds. She lifts her arm. She opens her hand. She casts them into the wind. Now they're no longer hers. One of my favorite parts of this painting is that you can actually see the seeds suspended in midair. They're not in her hand and they're not in the ground. They're in transit, Right? She has let them go. What will happen to them? Maybe they will sink down into the dirt, and in the days to come, they will put down roots into the soil, send up a stalk, and maybe, maybe many weeks later, there will be 50 kernels of wheat on each one of the stalk, and then maybe months later, there will come a harvest. You open up your bank account or your wallet or your checkbook. You stretch out your hand. You 
give your money to the church. You sow seeds of investment into the ministry of the people of God. Maybe you put cash in an offering plate. Maybe you write a check. Maybe you click a button on a phone or a laptop. Maybe an automated giving platform clicks the button for you. Either way, the seeds leave your account. There they go. They're in transit, traveling through the Wi-Fi connection. What will happen to them? Well, maybe they'll settle down and, and get maybe used to pay the rent on a building like this one. Maybe they'll get used to fund ministry programs like the children's ministry that is gathering right now in all of these classrooms on the other side of that wall. Maybe those people, maybe kids, maybe teenagers, maybe college students, maybe men and women will begin to grow up in their faith. Maybe roots will get sent down. There'll be stability. The ministries will be able to keep happening day after day, week after week, year after year. Maybe people will grow over time. And then eventually there might be some fruit. There might be some seeds at the top of that stalk. There might be people that are so grown and mature in their virtue that they begin to do their work well in the world to the glory of God and to the good of their neighbor. Maybe they begin to seek justice and the common good here in their city. Maybe the city itself begins to change and become a different sort of place now that there are these virtuous people who are out there interacting with each other all throughout the week. When you invest in the work of the church, whether the money, whether the actual dollars go for rent dollars or program dollars or staff dollars, what are you really investing in? You're investing in people. Ho Chi Minh puts it this way, to reap a return in 10 years, plant trees. To reap a return in 100, cultivate people. I don't know if I agree with him with anything else, but I think I agree with that, right? Churches are places that cultivate people. The cultivation of the soul is the proper ministry of the people of God. And when we invest our dollars, what we're actually putting our money into is the cultivation of the souls of the people that are here right now, the neighbors that are not yet here, and even the future generations that will be here long after we're gone. I was reading earlier this week in the New York Times and I came across the story of Ruth Gottsman, who's this wonderful woman who for 55 years has uh, worked with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx in New York. And she's now 93 years old and her husband has passed away. And I'm not sure exactly what her husband did for a living, but he, whatever he did, he did it very well because they have a lot of resources. And she donated just a week or two ago $1 billion to the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And they announced to their student body just this past week that they are now tuition-free in perpetuity, forever. No one will ever pay tuition to that school ever again. And this changes the kind of student that this med school can admit, right? No longer can they only admit students who can afford it or only admit students who qualify for um, you know, government student loans. They can admit any student who is intellectually and physically qualified to become a physician. And that then changes the kind of medicine those students can practice when they graduate. Formerly, students averaged $200,000 in debt on the other side of graduation. That changes the kind of career choices a student can make. And so what the school was seeing was that more and more med students were going into fields like plastic surgery, where you can make a lot more money than fields like family medicine, 
where you have to sit with children who come in with colds or achy bodies and you have to listen to them and figure out what's wrong and then not make very much money from that visit. And so you get more and more students who are going into fields that don't matter quite as much and fewer and fewer students going into the fields that actually work with real people that make the greatest difference. And they have to do that because of the debt they're carrying and they're carrying all that debt because med school is so expensive. So think about the cascading effect of this kind of generosity. Now there will be students who are able to attend the school. Then those students will be able to go into the lesser paying medical fields, but the fields that have the higher impact on the community. And maybe a hundred years from now, there will be some kid in the Bronx that has a cold that is able to go and to see a doctor face to face. All because years ago, Ruth Gotsman gave away most of her money. Now she's 93. Will she see that happen? She will not. She will not see the fruit of her gift. She will not be there for the harvest. She may not even live to see the first student graduate who received this gift. But she, on her way out of this life, is sowing. And there will be a harvest later. Now, all of that is to say, when we give away our money in big, grand, awesome, make the front page of the New York Times ways, or in small, secret, quiet ways, just a few dollars that hardly anybody notices, but that the Lord sees. What's happening with our dollars is they're going out into the world as seed, as investment in other people, in other people's souls and lives, and the world changes just a little bit. But that's not the only thing that happens. And the Apostle Paul knows that. The Corinthian church learned that, and we can learn that too. And this is actually great news for those of you that have a little bit of money and hear a story like that about Ruth Gotsman and think, if I had a billion dollars, I would do that too, (laughs) right? (laughs) No, you wouldn't. (laughs) And actually, I wouldn't either. And I know that because my giving patterns don't match that. I'm not on the way to doing that. And I tell myself all the time. In fact, Rachel and I had a date on Friday morning. And one of the things we talked about as we walked together was, what would you do if you won the lottery? Right? It's kind of a fun mental exercise. And when I daydream about those sort of things, I always think about how much I would give away and all the great things we could do with that money that I give away. And then I go back to my normal life of not giving. Right? And think, if I were wealthier, oh, I'd be a lot more generous. Oh, but there's something here about something that happens inside my own heart in regard to giving. And it's kind of a good news, bad news situation. Let's take a look at it. Paul goes on to write in verse 12, for the ministry of this service was not only supplying the needs of the saints, not only supplying the needs of the saints, meaning this financial gift the Corinthian church is going to give to the church in Jerusalem is not only to bless the church in Jerusalem. And then there's this hinge phrase, but is also, and then the second thing, the other side of the coin, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. For the Jerusalem people who got the gift? No, 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 no. For the Corinthian people who gave the gift. Say more, Paul. What are you talking about? He does say more. He writes, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
I find that phrase, the harvest of your righteousness, so interesting. That's a deep metaphor, right? Because righteousness is not something you can see or feel or touch or taste, right? And so stretching this farming metaphor, maybe almost to the breaking point here, part of the harvest that is gathered here is what happens inside of you when you open your hand and begin to give. And there's a three-step logic, three-step logical flow to this. Step one, God gives to you. Step two, you give it away. Step three, you start to become like God in the best sense of the phrase. Meaning, as you give, you begin to ever more deeply reflect the image of the God who gives to you. As this happens, you become the very opposite of the thing you're worried you're going to be. Whenever I'm faced with an invitation to give, I always end up worrying about whether there will be enough left for me, right? And I worry that if I give too much, then I won't be happy with what I have because I won't have very much left, right? What Paul is calling out is that actually the very opposite thing happens inside of a person when you give. That actually, as you open your hands and begin to give, you actually, at the very same time, begin to, begin, begin to become more content with what you already have. It produces thanksgiving inside of you. And so the things that all of us want, all of us, things like contentment, being at peace with yourself, being satisfied with your status and your place and your possessions in this life, things everybody wants. Paul's saying, you know, that, that emotional state inside of you, hey, that's on the other side of giving. It's not on this side of giving, which is the opposite of the way I tend to operate. I tend to think, well, first I need to earn enough to get to a place in life where I'm, I'm happy and content with what I have. And then once I'm content, then I'll skim a layer off the top and give away the extra, right? And what Paul is saying to me is, Dan, you're an idiot. <laughs> That's not how this works. First, you begin to give. And then as you begin to give, you become more grateful for everything you have. As you become grateful for everything you have, you become content and satisfied in everything you have. That, that inner peace that you're looking for is on the other side of starting to give things away. Now, if I can ask you to return to the cover art, let's just, let's just look back at this, at this beautiful woman. What is happening inside this woman's heart as she sows these seeds? Does she worry and doubt if the seeds will grow? Does she worry that maybe she's sowed too much, that she should have kept back more to make bread for herself? She doesn't look very young though. She looks a little bit older. And so perhaps this is not her first season. Maybe it's not the first time she's planted a field. Maybe she's enjoying the act of sowing because she knows that the seeds will sprout and grow and that a reaping must be, must be preceded by sowing. You don't get to reap until you sow. And so maybe even as she sows, she's imagining the harvest. Maybe she's casting her imagination forward four, five, six months. And she's imagining the wheat that will grow, the kernels that will be harvested, the flour that will be ground, the bread that will be baked. Maybe she's thinking about bread, even as she's planting these seeds. And so do you know what faith is? <laughs> faith is, is where you are taking actions right now in the present 
because of a future hope that is animating you, that is pulling you along. That's what faith is. So maybe what we're looking at right here is an act of faith. Maybe sowing seeds is an act of faith. And so as she sows in faith, what's happening to her heart? Well, her heart is going to start to grow in faith. And and the more generously she scatters seed, the more generous her heart becomes. And as she contemplates who made the seeds and who caused the rain to fall and who causes the sun to shine, maybe she's becoming thankful. Maybe she even starts to pray as she scatters the seed. Her open hand, think about this metaphor with me, as she, as she unclenches her hand and it opens, so her heart unclenches and opens as well. There's a connection between the hand and the heart. And as the hand opens, so the heart opens as well. She's becoming more fully herself as she does this. And so I just wonder what happens inside your heart as you give. Do you worry that maybe you've given too much, that you won't have enough left over for yourself? Do you, do you, can you cast your imagination forward and wonder what will happen with this gift? What kind of fruit will it produce? And as you open your hand to give, can you sense that something opens up inside of you as well? Jesus described this dynamic with this phrase, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And even though Jesus said it, this is gonna sound like a crazy thing to say, it's actually not a Christian principle. It's just a human universal principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, hearts tend to follow money, not the other way around. We tend to think that we give money to the things that we love. We give money where our heart is. And Jesus is just doing a little bit of really deep human psychology on us and saying, oh no, that's not how these humans that I have designed work. These humans follow the money. Where they invest their treasure, then their heart tends to chase after that thing. So the call from this principle would be, well, put your money wherever you want your heart to go. Think about what you wish you loved more and give your money to that thing. Frederick Robertson puts it this way. He writes, you reap what you sow, not something else. And there's something so profoundly, hilariously troubling about that statement. You reap what you sow, not something else. You plant tomato seeds, you get tomatoes. You don't get a different thing. He goes on to write, an act of love makes the soul more loving. A deed of humbleness deepens humbleness. The thing reaped is the very thing sown, multiplied a hundredfold. So what happens when the money that I have is is not received as a gift for the purpose of serving the church and serving my neighbor? What happens when my money becomes kind of an end unto itself? What happens when I want only to receive money or maybe let's be honest, only take money instead of give money? What happens when I'm reluctant? What happens when I sow sparingly? Well, I give a little bit, not not nothing. I'll always give something, but I give, give a little bit. A small enough amount so it doesn't significantly impact what I want to do in life. And then on the other side of that, sparing sowing, I, I, I reap sparingly. I reap a little bit. There's a little bit of fruit, not a lot. I think about, not a different garden, but I think about a tree that's in our front yard. There's one apple tree, one lonely, pathetic apple tree in the Murata family front yard. Do you know how many apples I get from that tree every year? Like two. (laughs) It is so sad. They don't even taste very good. So angry about that apple tree. 
Do you know how you get apple trees to produce a lot of fruit? You plant them in the middle of an orchard. You need a whole orchard of trees to cross-pollinate before you get a bountiful harvest of apples. You plant one tree, you're just not going to get that much. But that, but that image is what my giving tends to be like. I gave a little that one time. And so I got a little fruit that one time. I think too many of I'm just putting that on me, but I wonder, I wonder if too many of us are sowing one kind of seed and expecting to reap something entirely different. I wonder if, if there's, in a spiritual sense, you're standing in your garden in the midst of August and thinking, I should have planted something in March, right? Where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. When my treasure stays with me, then my heart stays with me as well. And what does that do to my heart? What happens inside of me when I don't give? Robert Louis Stevenson, who's more famous for writing Treasure Island than he is for the statement that I'm about to read. But I actually think this one sentence might be better than that whole book. He writes, sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. Sooner or later, everybody sits down to a banquet of consequences. And I just wonder, what banquet of consequences are my habits spreading before me? When I close my heart off, and I clench my fists, and I do not give, then months and years and decades, maybe an eternity later, the table before me is empty. Nothing to reap, nothing to harvest, no feast to enjoy. I will be the benefactor of my own stinginess. Now, we began with a question. Do you remember it? How do we change? <laughs> and we said that we do not change primarily through our intellect, but actually through our embodied practices. So how do you change? Why would anyone engage in such radical generosity and such self-sacrificing giving? How do you become this kind of person? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us that answer as well. It comes from your, quote, Confession of the gospel of Christ. You see, only those who confess the gospel, meaning only those who know deep in their bones the generosity of God to them, the gift of God to them, the bountiful sowing of God into them, are the kind of people who are then able to go and to give cheerfully and generously. You see that principle, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? This is hilarious. It does not only apply to human beings. It also applies to God. Where God's treasure is, there his heart will be also. The absolutely astounding news of the gospel is that God calls you and I his treasure. That we are the treasure of the Lord. And therefore, his heart has followed us. Why did God take on human flesh and come to us in the person of Jesus? Well, because his heart followed his treasure. <laughs> There's the treasure, and there it goes, like a prodigal kid off down the road, running away from God, refusing to give, clenched fists, refusing to participate in the giving and receiving of this world that God made. And God does not let us just go. Instead, he chases after us because his heart follows his treasure. And so God chases after us in the person and work and death and resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, to confess the gospel 
is to be someone who knows that God's been chasing after you and that God has sown into your life in the person and work of Jesus. Here's a one sentence summary of what we're talking about. Listen, if you can. Jesus is the generous gift of God. Jesus is the seed that was sown bountifully into the ground in his death and will yield a bountiful harvest in our resurrection of which he is the first fruit. I'll say it again. Jesus is the seed that was sown bountifully into the ground in his death that will yield a bountiful harvest in our resurrection of which his is the first fruit. Now, friends, we're, gonna, we're almost done here. Here's what you need to understand. The practice of giving in the gospel is so very different from all other practices of giving your money away. There are all kinds of organizations in this world that will ask for your money. And that's great. I'm not saying don't give to those. Like giving is just categorically a great thing. But giving from a heart that is motivated by the gospel a heart that understands what God has done for you in Jesus is so different and it produces something different inside of you. That's why there are very wealthy people who are totally, who are like generous donors and they give big sons of money and write big checks to organizations and they do so with pride. They do so for status. They do so so that other people will applaud them, right? You can give money and it produce all kinds of terrible things inside of you. Or you can give and it produce virtue inside of you. Gentleness and humbleness and love. Giving can be a means of, of cultivating virtue, but only when it is motivated by the gospel. So how do you get started? Well, think about this. Sow an act, sow a thought, and you reap an act. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. It's not even a Christian that said that. It's just the way human beings work. The place to get started is actually to just begin to give. Sort of like going to the gym for the very first time in a very long time. Start with the lightweights and then kind of work your way up. Here's three different ways to start giving. Three different pockets, three different places from which you can give. Very simple and very practical. Place number one is simply to give 10% of your gross annual earnings to the work of the church and the people of God. Think of this as a tithe of seeds that is reinvested into next year's crop. Every good farmer worth their salt knows that when you, do, that when you gather up the harvest, you have to set aside a portion of the seeds to replant the field next year. Except that metaphor completely breaks down right now because I think Monsanto actually owns the DNA rights to all of the seeds and farmers have to rebuy seeds every year. I'm not gonna get lost on that tangent. It's an absolute catastrophe. <laughs> but historically, at the time in which this metaphor was written, Every good farmer must set aside a portion of their seeds to replant the field next year. The church is no different. Every follower of Jesus sets aside at minimum 10% of what they've gathered up from the year to replant for the coming year. The way our church does that is in pledging once a year. In the month of May, we ask every member of Redeemer to make a pledge. It's not a binding contract. It's simply a way of saying together, let's replant for another year. Now, that's one way. There's actually, a, there's actually a second and a third way to give as well. The second way is to give from accumulated, accumulated wealth. So we're not talking about a tithe of what you earned this year. We're talking about giving out of the storehouse. 
giving out of what you've saved up over time. In the biblical imagination, the only reason for long-term saving is to be able to give a big gift when the need arises. That need could be a famine, a shortfall, a crisis, something's gone wrong. Thank goodness that faithful members of the church have a storehouse and they're able to give. Or it could be something like it's building for the future, a need to raise more money for a new thing. And it's then good and wise that people have a storehouse. It's a second way to give, a different pocket out of which to give. And then the third would be giving from your will or your trust or your estate. And if you can just get your imagination here with me, the, the proper way to understand this would be writing your home church, whether it's Redeemer or a different place, into your will, into your trust, into your estate planning, so that even in death, you continue to be able to give. This kind of giving is so different from the other kinds because the other kinds of giving, you might actually get a chance to benefit from and experience the fruit of your sowing and your investment. But when you, when you set it up so that when you die, which is to say, when your seed goes down into the soil, when they plant you, future generations continue to be blessed by and benefit from the investment that you've made. And similar to Ruth Gotsman, who will probably never see the fruit of her investment to that med school. You will not live to see the fruit of your investment, but future generations will, and they will see it and they will rejoice and they will give thanks to God. Friends, you were made in the image of a self-giving God. And so when you give, you become more fully yourself. Now, here's, here's the place where the plane lands. This table to which we are all invited here in just a few minutes, this is the table where is spread a banquet of consequences. These are the consequences of the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. This bread was made from wheat seeds that were sown into the ground. The wine was made from grape seeds sown into the ground. But this meal together is harvested as a sacramental gift that speaks to us of Jesus and the gift of God sown into the ground and who sprouted up into new life and resurrection. And so this meal tells you of the consequences of God's self-giving love. So before we even have the opportunity to go out into the world as generous givers, first, we're just grateful receivers. Come and receive the gift that God gives. Then go forth into the world and give and give and give and give. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.